0: open up to the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to use one of the Pew Bibles where the passage is also printed in the worship guide. Before we get into our passage, um, I want to ask a question that is a general question just of how we um, go about studying the Bible here at City Church. Have you ever wondered maybe why do we study the Bible so closely? Why do you preach for sometimes even 40 minutes? If you're a visitor this morning, that may happen, um, just giving you fair warning. But why do, you, why, why do we study the Bible so closely? Like, why do we examine it um, so closely within its context? Well, this past week, I think we had a good negative example, if good and negative, can they go together in the same sentence, of why we do this. You May or may not have heard, our attorney general quoted a passage of scripture this past week, and it was grossly taken out of context to actually defend what the Bible would tell us grieves God's heart. We can pull all kinds of things out of scripture and make them say all kinds of different things, but um, we want to study the Bible in context. We want to walk through passages of scripture deeply to look at what they really mean, and most importantly, This is God's Word to us. God reveals Himself through His Word. He speaks to us, and we want to listen intimately to His voice and submit to it. So with that as a little bit of background as we go into this, um, we're completing our little mini-series on the Gospel of John uh, that we have called Flourish. It's been more of a thematic series um, on that idea of Flourish, And we've used the Gospel of John as our guide to help us, bring us to a deeper understanding of what it means to flourish um, under God. And the question we've been asking is this, how do we really, truly flourish? Not just survive, not just merely exist, but how do we really flourish? How do we really thrive? How do we tap into what maybe we would think of as the good life? Statement that I've been making at the introduction of each of these sermons is this, and it might surprise you. Jesus didn't come to make us more religious. Jesus came to help us to flourish. He wanted people to be born again, language that is used in this very gospel. He wanted to help people to come alive. A few weeks ago, we looked at the purpose statement uh, of Jesus' ministry, it came from Jesus' own lips. He said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So if you want to know the purpose for which Jesus came, there you have it. He came so that we might have abundant life. As we come to our passage this morning, we are going to listen into an intimate prayer prayed by Jesus himself. Let me read uh, verses 1 through 26 for us of chapter 17. It's the whole chapter actually. and I in them. Let's take a moment to pray and ask God to reveal himself to us this morning through his word. Father God, we pray that you would cause your word to come alive this morning so that we might see Jesus. We pray that you would do this through the power of your Holy Spirit and that your word would penetrate our hearts regardless of where we find ourselves this morning, believing, disbelieving, or unsure of what we believe. We pray. In the name of the Trinity. Amen. So it happened to me again. This past Friday, uh, I had the opportunity, or not Friday, um, Wednesday, I had the opportunity to, for the first time in my life, to go to the NFL Hall of Fame. Now, that's not what happened to me again, because as I just said, it was my first time ever going there. But what happened to me again was that at the end of the tour, there was this. Uh, area in the museum designated to Super Bowl history. And do I need to remind you of who won the Super Bowl this past year? That's right, the Eagles. I'll get this in at least every couple months. The Eagles won the Super Bowl. So my favorite team that I've loved my whole life, um, the year that I get to finally go to the NFL Hall of Fame, it's the year in which the Eagles have won the Super Bowl. And at the End of this experience in the Super Bowl wing of the museum, you get to sit down and watch a Super Bowl Super Bowl film. It reviews this past season and then especially focuses in on the Super Bowl. And let me tell you, it's a big screen, it's like a movie theater. You're watching this film and by the end of the game, I might as well have been on the field with the players, being raised up by the players. I might as well have been the MVP because I felt like I was there. Not too different from the actual night that the Eagles won the Super Bowl. How does this keep happening to me? Every time I review the game or watch highlights from the game, I'm caught up in the glory of it all. And I I think that is an accurate word to use. I'm caught up in the glory of it, as many of you were and continue to be. And, And maybe for you, it's something else in life that you tap into and you experience some form of glory, something weighty, something meaningful. Why does this happen to us? Where does this desire for glory come from? Well, our passage this morning, I think, helps bring some understanding to this. Um, Our passage this morning helps us to understand what it means to be human in this particular way. Why is it that we have these longings for glory? And as we look into our passage, what we find here is Jesus intimately, personally, deeply praying that we might tap into the very glory that he experiences, that we might tap into the glory that is found in the very life of God. We've already mentioned this um, earlier in the worship service as I set up the confession of sin. We have this problem as people. We have this longing for glory, this longing for abundant life, But we look for it in all of the wrong places. A few weeks ago, I think it was actually the first week of this series, I ended um, the sermon with a quote from Albert Camus, Camus, who was a philosopher, not a Christian. And he explicitly talked about how he would basically go out and drink for nights on end and spend time with harlots. Why? Because he longed for eternal life, he said. So what we're noticing here is that this longing for eternal life is a dangerous longing. Now, as Christians, we would say that it's a dangerous longing because we now live in a fallen world, and our hearts are prone to take us far from God. And like I've said, we look for life and glory in all of the wrong places, so we need to be aware of this. But again, as we focus on our passage this morning, Jesus is praying For us to tap into, to have access to real glory, true glory, that is ultimately talked about as eternal life. What is eternal life? Well, as we come to this prayer of Jesus this morning, uh, it immediately follows what is called by uh, biblical scholars the Farewell Discourse. We've actually looked at, I think, three passages now that um, were in that discourse of Jesus. Uh, And that discourse starts at the end of chapter 13 and goes through um, this chapter, chapter 17. And this farewell discourse fits a very specific literary form in Judaism. Oftentimes, dying or departing leaders, prophets, or rabbis within a particular community would commonly give final words of instruction to their followers. And this tradition also included a final prayer to close the farewell speech. This is more or less what Jesus is doing. He's had this time with his disciples in which he's had this final discourse with them, reminding them of important themes. And now he moves into praying for them. And so this is at some point after the disciples have left the upper room, but before Jesus has been arrested, that he enters into this prayer. And we're told in verse 1 that he lifts his eyes up to heaven. This was a common posture for prayer in ancient times, a customary posture. And this prayer gives us a glimpse into the very heart of Jesus. It's the longest prayer of Jesus that we have in the Gospels. It's intimate. It's sacred. Think about it. Here we have our Savior praying for us. Yes, for us. The the prayer can be divided up into three main sections. First, Jesus prays for himself in verses 1 through 5. And then um, in verses 6 through 19, Jesus prays for the disciples who are in his presence. And then verses 20 through 26, he prays for us for those followers that would come after those disciples who were in his presence. And so this prayer is intimate, it's personal, and like I said, it's sacred. This is Jesus praying for you. This is Jesus praying for me. And what's most remarkable about this prayer, I think, is that this prayer comes right before Jesus is going to begin the journey to the cross. And Jesus is not blinded to the fact of what is about to occur. He, he says at the beginning of this prayer, Father, the hour has come. Jesus knows what is about to happen. We, we saw Jesus use this language back in chapter 13, immediately after Judas had um, left him and the disciples in the upper room, Jesus knew that with Judas' departure, it was setting into motion the beginning of the end for Jesus, for his life on earth. And so Jesus prays this intimate, deeply personal prayer right before he's about to go to the cross. And so he's thinking of his disciples in his presence, but also uh, us as well. In this prayer, we um, get a glimpse into Jesus' intimate relationship with the Father. Now, two weeks ago, when we looked at chapter 13, we talked quite a bit about this idea of Trinity, the fact that God is revealed in Scripture to us as triune. He's one God, but revealed to us in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I say this every single time that we talk about this, that um, this is mind-boggling. So if you are here with us this morning, and you're new to Christianity, or you're not that familiar with Christianity, and you wonder what in the world I'm talking about, to some degree, those of us who have been followers of Jesus for many years are in the same boat. It's hard to wrap our minds around this. But what's most important, and C.S. Lewis is the one who has said this, is that what is most important for us is to be drawn into this tripersonal life. As we're going to see, that's the very purpose for which we were made, to be drawn into the tri-personal life of God. And so Jesus prays intimately to his Father. In I think it's six times um, in uh, this prayer, he uses the term Father. And so we get insight into this intimate relationship that is shared between the Father and the Son. One commentator says this, this is the Father and the Son exhibiting the intimacy, the community that is native to their life. And so we're beginning to get an idea of who God is according to Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. And this is really important. I think it's profound because like I mentioned, this is the longest prayer that we have of Jesus in the Gospels, It's meaty, gives us lots of content, and in this opportunity that Jesus has to basically model prayer for us, in a sense, but to also pray for his disciples throughout time, what does he do? He takes us into the life of the Trinity. He gives us insight into this dance, this rhythm between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I want to focus your. we are going to come back to that, but I want to focus your attention for a moment on verses 2 and 3. Jesus mentions that the Father has given him authority over all flesh. For what purpose? To give eternal life to all whom you have given me. Now, this shouldn't come as a surprise, right? John 10.10. Why did Jesus come? He said it himself, um, so that they might have life and have it abundantly. Um, Throughout the Gospel of John, we were reminded that Jesus came to give us life, to give his people life. What is eternal life? What is eternal life? It's a good question to ask, isn't it? If we're going to really understand the dynamic of this life that Jesus came to give us, we should ask ourselves, what exactly is it? I think it's especially important for us to ask that question because... I think we're so easily misled, and maybe it has to do, this is another example of Scripture being read out of context, but so often when we think of eternal life, we think of um, maybe going to heaven when we die. Now, that is included under eternal life. That falls under the category of eternal life, but that doesn't quite get at the heart of what eternal life is how does Jesus define eternal life in verse 3? And this is eternal life. So Jesus wants to be really clear. Okay, you probably have all kinds of misconceptions of what eternal life is. So let me just tell you in my prayer, eternal life is that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is eternal life? Eternal life is knowing God. Now, One of the reasons that this is so significant is that sometimes the way that we talk about the gospel, we make it about what we can get out of it. And so when we think of eternal life as going to heaven when we die, um, how does God fit into that? Our desire for God, our longings for God. What can happen is that it can be easy for us to desire heaven, to desire life after death, but not So much desire God himself. Now, uh, obviously, if we're being really biblical, we would say they're one and the same. But I know in my own life, particularly in the past, that I've been guilty of that. But eternal life is knowing God. What is the goal of salvation? Let's ask it this way. What is the, the goal of salvation? Why did Jesus come to live, die, and rise again? It's so that we might actually, really, truly, vibrantly know God. That is eternal life. And so eternal life, according to Jesus, is a quality of life. It's a life that begins the moment that we come to know God through faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, and it's a life that lasts forever. That's eternal life, according to the Gospel of John. Now, what about this concept of knowing? When Jesus uses this word, and when this word is used in ancient times, it means more than simply assenting to information. Um, that, that can be how we think of knowing, right? We, we know stuff, meaning that we um, accumulate information about things. But that's not what is in view here. This kind of knowing is a personal knowing. It's a deep, intimate knowing. The, the best way that I can think of to maybe help you understand this, is that um, take Katie, my wife, for example. I know about her, right? I definitely know about her. I can tell you lots of facts about her. I can give you information about her. I know that information. But how do you think Katie would feel if that was the extent of my knowledge of her? I just simply knew stuff about her. No, my my knowledge of her is an intimate, a personal, a deep knowledge. This is what Jesus has in mind here. When he's praying that his disciples would have eternal life, that they would know the one true God and Jesus Christ, whom the, the, the Father has sent, he is praying that we might intimately, personally, deeply have knowledge of God. And this knowledge is not just a head knowledge, although it includes that. It's a full body knowledge, if you will. It's a comprehension of who God is. It's being caught up into the very life of God. And that gets unpacked for us a little bit as we go further. Verse 4, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You catch that? The glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then if we go back up again to verse 1, Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. There's a lot of back and forth glorifying going on here, right? This is a a very clear indication that Jesus understands himself to be divine. He understands himself to be God. The glory that is shared between the Father and Son is a divine glory. Glory. And this is a beautiful thing. So in this particular chapter, Jesus isn't um, talking. He doesn't make sp- explicit reference to the Holy Spirit. But we've um, seen in the prior chapters, there, there has been a focus on the Holy Spirit. But what we're, what we're getting a glimpse into is, again, this intimate relationship between the Father and the Son. But it's an intimate, a deep relationship that has existed from all eternity before the foundation of the world. I can't fathom that. I mean, what is that? From eternity's past, there was never a time in which God wasn't. The very beginning of the Bible, first line, in the beginning was God, right? Or that's John. Uh, In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. So before God made stuff, He existed. Now, this also is important as we um, see one of the characteristics that we find in this life of God, and that is love. If you look at verse um, 22, Jesus talks about the glory that the Father has given him, and I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me so that they may know perfectly so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. All right, so let's put this together. Father and Son together has existed from eternity's past. And what have they enjoyed, among other things, with each other? Love. Now, the fact that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, I I think, makes sense of this. Because if God wasn't three in one, how could love exist before the creation of the world? In order to love someone or something, there has to be an object, right? And love existed with God from eternity's past. That's because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are sharing in this relationship of love together. So this is a dynamic relationship, not a static relationship. You know, I I keep driving this further and further because I want you to see who God is. Who is the God of the Bible? Who is the Christian God? He is a social, relational being who overflows with love and unity. Jesus wants us to know this God, right? So when Jesus prays that we would have eternal life, we've talked about what eternal life is. It's knowing God. Well, we have to answer the question, who is God? Well, we've just started to do that. This is the God that we're talking about. And this God has uh, specifically revealed himself in the person of Jesus. And that's why Jesus is talking the way that he is throughout this prayer and he has in the discourse. Jesus came into the world with a very explicit purpose. It was to make the triune God known. Not only to make him known, but to draw all of those who are God's people into the very life of that triune God. So within God, he, he experiences love. He experiences communion. We, we see this back and forth between, um, as we already drew attention to, the Father and the Son. But then even when Jesus begins praying for his current disciples and the disciples to come, the back and forth then encompasses them. It encompasses us. That, they may, that we may be one as the Father and Son are one. And so what are some implications of this deep, intimate, personal knowledge of God? Well, one is love. One is love. Again, verse 20, 23. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. And then if we skip down to verse Uh, 25. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So we are meant to be drawn into the very life of God to experience the love that abounds within the Trinity, but not just to stay there, We are meant to then express and reveal that love to the world. That requires unity, something that Jesus prays for here. Now, every time that I come to this passage of Scripture, I struggle. And this week was no different because I I just think, again, of how sacred this prayer is of Jesus. I, I, I think of how intimate and personal it is that he's, revealing his heart he's basically saying all right if there are a few things that i really want for my disciples here they are one is unity and i can't help but to think about how the church has been characterized so often throughout history by this unity we need to repent of that and then to get more specific not just throughout history throughout the course of the world but even in our own country particularly along the lines of race relations I think of the disunity that continues to exist in the church today. We need to repent of that. Jesus prayed for something that looked, inc- looked incredibly different. How is it, let, let me ask it this way. As we look out in our world today, I, I think divided, our culture in particular, I think divided would be the word that I would use. If you said, all right, you have one word, to describe our culture, what word would you use? I I might say, at least on the spot, divided. How might the church, how might us as followers of Jesus speak the gospel profoundly, but also model the gospel profoundly in a culture that is divided? Unity. 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 Because if a divided culture looks in at the church and sees this unity and division, what is going to draw them to the triune God? What is going to draw them to Jesus? You see why Jesus prayed for what he prayed for. This is central to the mission of God, and this is what is so beautiful about this prayer. You know you could say that', it's, um, that there's spiritual formation here, there's maybe some mysticism going on here there's deep abiding in the, the, the very person of God, but there's also mission here. Why is it that Jesus came into the world to pursue us, to draw us into the Trinity? It's so that we might have communion. I mean, that's first and foremost. Um, if you look at the refle- one of the reflection quotes at the beginning of the worship guide from a, a theologian named Simon Chan. He says, what is the mission of the Trinity? Ultimately, all things are to be brought back into communion with the triune God. Communion is the ultimate end, not mission. We were made for communion with God. That's why when I um, watch a recap of the Eagle Super Bowl I have those longings for glory. I want to tap into it. I want to be a part of it. I want to enter into that glory. It's because I was made for a communion that surpasses that. I was made to dwell in and to enjoy communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But again, there's mission involved. In order to get to communion, there has to be mission. And that's why Jesus in verse 2 says... Again, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life. So the Father sent the Son into the world on a mission to give eternal life. What is eternal life? Knowing the Trinity, knowing the triune God. And now as his people, as we are caught up into the life of the triune God, what do we do next? Where do we go? Well, we commune with God. But as I I talked about, Uh, in the confession of sin, when we get into the heart of the Trinity, we discover that there is endless giving. And this is one of the the things that I find so beautiful about this prayer of Jesus. You know, I I mentioned how there are these three divisions um, in the prayer. Um, First, Jesus prays for himself, then he prays for the disciples in his presence, and then he prays for disciples to come. But it's a little misleading to actually say that Jesus prays for himself. Because Jesus' prayer is not promotion of self. Jesus' prayer is about glorification, right? Again, glorify your son for what purpose? So that the son may glorify you. This is not self-promotion. This is other-focused. And the Trinity can't help but to be this way. Within the very person and character of God, is endless giving, focus on the other, giving away, giving away. And so as God's people, as we come to recognize who God is, that he has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, remember that's also the, the foundation of Jesus' prayer, how do we tap into this eternal life? How do we tap into this glory? It's through faith in Jesus Christ And once we express that faith and find ourselves in the heart of the Trinity, communing with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, experiencing this endless giving, this other focus, if our experience with the Trinity is authentic, we are going to be propelled back out into the world to model this endless giving. We're going to be propelled out into the world to be focused on the other, to express Love And that begins in the life of Jesus' church, with unity and love of the other. These are are, are so intimately bound with each other. How how can we achieve unity, particularly in the midst of diversity? Whatever form of diversity you, you want to talk about, whether it be socioeconomic diversity or racial diversity, whatever it might be. How do we achieve unity in the midst of diversity? It's going to take love. It's going to take love. There's no way around it. Jesus told us in this prayer, not just in this prayer, but the whole farewell discourse, this is the point that Jesus is driving home, love. Love is so profound. Love is so beautiful. Scripture tells us that God is love. Again, that makes sense of what Jesus is teaching us here in his prayer. How can it be that God in his... That passage um, from John in another one of his letters, when he says that God is love, he doesn't mean that God is loving, although God is loving. He literally means that God is love. How can God within himself be love? Again, it's this relationship, this tri-personal life that he enjoys with himself. We could say it this way. If you look at um, the second of the reflection quotes in the bulletin, this comes from um, Esther Meek. Uh, She was one of my professors in seminary. What we're saying here is that love is at the core of all things. If God is love and we are made in the image of God and it is God who made the universe, at the core of all things is love. So she says, if love is at the core of all things, if reality at its core the highly sophisticated interpersonal act of gift, that knowing is quite sensibly a responding gesture of love. We love in order to know. So how is it that we are moved to know God more intimately, more deeply? It's by cultiv- having a deeper love of him cultivated in our lives. You see how they, one feeds the other? So as we set out in this knowing enterprise uh, of knowing who God is and what he's like, the foundation is love. Love is at the core of all things. And so when we practice love, beginning within the church, because that's Jesus' prayer here. Um, remember uh, where he says um, before, in the middle of the prayer, he says that I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those that you have given me disciples, um, present disciples and disciples to come out of the world. It's not that Jesus is saying he doesn't care about the world. Remember John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Um, We have to, this is another example of knowing context and knowing how the Bible uses language. When world is used in the gospel of John, particularly in this context, it's referring to the world that is inflicted by sin. It's referring to a fallen world. And so Jesus is praying explicitly for his disciples so that when we practice love, we are finding our stride in life. We're, we're going along with the grain of the universe. We're practicing what we were made for. That is love of God and love of others. Does that make sense for you now? Why Jesus, not only Jesus, but throughout the biblical story, The law is summarized with love God and love your neighbor. This is why, because love is at the core of all things, because God is love. It's who he is within himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in order to achieve unity in the midst of diversity, it requires love. Love. And how does Jesus ultimately demonstrate love? By laying down his life for his people. So how do we practice love in the midst of differences, in the midst of diversity within the church? Self-sacrifice. A willingness to give up our preferences, to give up maybe what we would choose. Be willing to go outside of our comfort zone, um, to not just spend time with people who look like us and act like us. Love requires self-sacrifice. And again, self-sacrifice is what we find in the heart of the Trinity. It's what produces this endless giving. So communion, unity, and love. And these are all wrapped up with with each other. They're tangled up together. Look at how Jesus ends this prayer one more time. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is an invitation, if you will, from Jesus. And it's incredible. Jesus is saying that he has experienced from all eternities past this intimate, deep love with the Father, a love that is indescribable. And he's now saying, I want those that you have given me, those that I have protected, those that I'm about to die for. Father, may they enter into the life that we enjoy together as Trinity. And so as we look ahead this summer, summer is usually for most people a downtime. We have a lot of people traveling on vacation any given week, that is true in the summer, and, and things just seem to be more low-key. In fact, this um, summer, in the month of August, we're going to do something a little different that we've never done as a church. We're going to have a church um, sabbatical um, in which we are not going to do any activities except Sunday worship, and we're going to be supplying um, devotional guide and other resources for us to really focus on spiritual formation and communing with God during that time as we prepare for the busyness of fall. But as we wrap up this series, we're going to begin Philippians, the book of Philippians next week, by the way. But as we wrap up this series with summer ahead, take Jesus up on this invitation, this offer. Take him seriously. That because of what he has done for you in dying on the cross and sacrificing himself. For you, you really, truly have access to the life of the Trinity, where you can experience communion, unity, and love. Use this summer as an opportunity to be refreshed in your faith, to be renewed in your faith. And just real quick, practically, I'd encourage you, I've been telling people this a lot in the last month because I'm trying to live by it. Start small. It could be that for you this morning that you are so out of whack that you haven't read your Bible, you haven't prayed, you haven't done anything like that in so long, you don't even know where to begin. Here's my advice to you tomorrow morning, or it doesn't have to be tomorrow morning, whenever tomorrow, spend two minutes reading a passage of Scripture and then praying in light of it. Two minutes. I'm just picking a time. You could do 20 seconds. It doesn't matter to me. It could be 20 minutes, it could be two hours. You pick your time. But it's just like anything else in life. You know, if you were to tell yourself after having not gone to the gym for two months that, all right, I'm going to go to the gym tomorrow, I'm going to run five miles, you're setting yourself up for failure. Start realistically. Start small. Begin to enter gradually deeper and deeper into the life of the Trinity because God wants to renew you. God wants you to flourish. Have you heard the story this past week of Carol Cullen? Carol Cullen um, had been the secretary to the Eagles head coach for many years, um, approaching a decade, and then under Chip Kelly, uh, she was fired. And to her surprise, a couple weeks ago, she received an email from the Eagles organization telling her that she was going to be receiving a Super Bowl ring. Can you imagine that? Super. I mean, somebody might know, how, how much are these rings, these, the genuine rings? I mean, thousands of dollars, thousands and thousands of dollars, I think. Could you imagine receiving that email after the, the, the heartbreak of being fired from a job that she loved, for her to be recognized by the organization in that way? She said this, it was kind of like going back home. It was really special to see so many people that I haven't seen in a really long time. It was difficult for a while after I was let go, and to be brought back into it was big. To be brought back into it was big. She experienced a level of glory, right? But it's a longing for glory, an experience of glory, that is just a mere foreshadow of what we are really meant for. And so I invite you, along with myself this summer, may we enter more deeply into the life of the Trinity. May we experience communion, unity, and love. And as we get to the heart of the Trinity, may we then, as God's people together unified, be sent out to reveal who God is and what he's like to our neighbors. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that it's impossible to fully understand who you are. You are bigger than we can conceive. You are more mysterious than we could ever imagine, and yet you still have chosen to reveal enough of yourself that we might know you and experience life in you. My prayer for us as a church this summer is that we would indeed experience life in you. I pray that love would characterize us. I pray that unity would characterize us And I pray that you would produce these fruits as we commune with you, as we know you intimately, personally, and deeply. We also want to thank you for knowing us deeply, personally, and intimately. We are safe in you because you knew the worst of us, and yet you still sent your Son to die for us. So we praise you for that knowledge you have of us. We pray that you would increase our knowledge of you. Pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.